Hello and welcome to Las Blancas Podcast. I'm your host, Omarvin. And finally, I'm joined by Grant Little to talk about a league game. We haven't been able to talk about one since December 22nd, if I'm remembering correctly. Grant, how does it feel to be back and talk about Primera Bergola football, especially this game, which was wild as hell? Yeah, this game was all the chaotic energy, but it feels good to be back. I was worried, you know, no squad list, like, we're going to get to kick off and they're going to cancel it for some reason again. But it happened. It definitely happened. And we're going to break it all down. We've seen a lot of weird shit with the squad lists. This might be the first time we haven't got one for a match that's gone on to be played. Like they just, they just decided not to send it out. Like I wake up to a message that's like no squad list from you. And uh, that, that's a new one, I guess. Hopefully that's not a trend going forward because it does make it awfully hard to then try to suss out the logic of the lineups. And this was an interesting one versus Sevilla with Sophie Svala, our new signing, getting to start. And so she's in at left back in a defense of Ivana, Bob's, Kenti, Obviously, ahead of Misa in goal, it's a midfield of Hasis, Ornoza, and Maite, and we'll have to have a whole bit on Maite because of the way she played today. And then an attack of Caroline Muller Hansen as a lone striker flanked by Atene del Castillo and Olga Carmona. So Olga and, and Svava, two players who are like, they're going to compete for the same position, probably get to start together in, in the first league game since Svala has been signed. So that was very interesting. I guess I can ask you what you think about the lineups, but it's, it's not like there's much. It's not like we can provide an alternative, not really knowing who is available aside from players on the bench. So Pere was on the bench. Kosovaya Slani was on the bench. Esther, Cardona, Lorena, Claudia Florentino, Lucio Rodriguez, Rocio Gavez, and Meline Gerard. So it looks like he had options. Obviously, we don't know quite the fitness of all of these players, but what do you think about the 11 that Todel put out on the field and where he positioned all the players? Yeah, I thought it was a little odd at first, um, but then I remembered that we do have a midweek game coming up, so maybe that's why we didn't see Aslani or, or Cardona or some of those players start. When the lineup first came out, I was a bit confused because I was like, Svava, Olga, both left backs. But then it became clear after, you know, I was writing, writing everything out that Olga was going to be playing in the attack, which it's been a minute since we've seen that. But I was interested to see how Svava fit in and then how she would ultimately work together with Olga and how Olga would be in attack since she hasn't been there uh, as often. Other than that, I thought it was pretty straightforward and typical Toriel stuff so far, other than Muller at the nine. But again, that could be kind of a rotation thing, knowing that Sevilla, although they were in good form, winning three straight since the, since the winter break, they're, they're not as good as Real Sociedad, and we have them on Wednesday, I believe. Toriel has been quite open about his desire to, to rely on rotations and make use of the full depth of the squad. When I asked him about Muller way back and where her best position was, he said he was going to swap her around as needed. This might be the first time we're seeing her as a lone striker. I don't quite remember. A lot has happened since the start of the season, and it's not like we've had consistent football as well. But 
that I think is an interesting talking point because there's a difference between being good as a striker alone versus being good as a striker in a two. This match was just crazy. Like, I don't even know. Every time we play Sevilla, it is. Every time we play Sevilla, the game is just nuts. I mean, this one really reminded me of, I think it was a 5-2 victory at home last (laughs) season. And it, it reminded me of that game for a lot of reasons. One, a lot of goals. Two, we probably could have had five goals quite easily in this match, and we probably also could have conceded another. So 5-2 honestly might be a better reflection of the balance of play. Um, there, were, there were also, like, similar vibes, right? So, like, I remember that Sevilla game for Cardona just, like, completing, like, 1,500 dribbles on the right-hand <laughs> yeah. side and just ripping people apart. And Atenea had a little bit of that going on in this game, just completely unleashing and, and wanting to humiliate the players she was going up against. I mean, she had some really, really nice moments. But yeah, wh- whatever it is with these two sides, it's like Sevilla are just pure chaos, right? They don't defend particularly well, but they're so direct in attack and, and are potent on the counterattack, particularly because of Tony Payne. Obviously, last season they had Claudia Pino, which made them even more dangerous. But we all know Tony Payne at this point, and she's a nightmare to deal with, with the high line and, and on the break. And so they will just keep coming wave after wave of attack. And while not really being able to stop you as well, so it's kind of down to the other teams to, to say like, okay, I'm going to put my foot down on things and just control things, right? Manage the tempo. That's been a bit of a challenge for Real Madrid as a growing team. Although I, I think we came out of this as clear and deserved winners, but it's not like, we were controlling the chaos. We were, we were kind of leaning into it and just kind of seeing where it took us and, and our quality put us on top. So what do you think about, I don't know, opening 10, 15 minutes like that in a way that might have actually been the most straightforward part of the match before the goals came in and things got really nuts? But how did you see it? Yeah, I think like the word that we're probably going to use a lot was chaotic. I think we came out and we knew what Sevilla was, were going to do. They were going to go direct. We saw that pretty much immediately. We had a bit of the ball, a whole lot of Athenea trying to take players on, but we didn't really set a tempo at any time. And so as Sevilla went direct, we kind of went direct. We, we, we were a little more composed on the ball, I thought, um, than Sevilla, who basically just bypassed the midfield every time. But it was, it was chaotic. As we expected, I think as Sevilla scored the first goal, it was a pretty typical, I think you messaged me a, like a reminiscent of an Osnar Real Madrid performance where the team wasn't really playing well, didn't have much going in the final third, even though they were probably the better team. But it looked out of sorts for us. It didn't look like we were trying to put our stamp on the play. It didn't look like we were trying to possess or pin Sevilla. It looked like we were accepting what Sevilla was doing, and we said, all right, we'll lean into it as well. It did feel a bit Osnar-esque, and look, the, tactically, like, there's, there's just not that much different so far. I mean, I don't suspect there will be, like, these huge dramatic changes in the way we're playing. In a way, Toril has almost kind of leaned into what Osnar wanted more aggressively by playing on the wings a ton, like, the, the most common theme with, with Torillo so far when he's played like a 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1 type formation is the wingers are just so wide 
in line with the fullbacks. And we're just stretching the width with two players on that side as much as possible. And then everything kind of works off of that. I think that there was in a slight issue with profiles and attack. And I was going to tweet it out like at that point in time. And then the goals came and, and chances just started flowing after that. And offense was no longer a problem. But like really up until the first goal, there was one chance for Muller. And it was kind of a good one. She didn't end up connecting on the ground cross. But other than that, it was like, well, okay, where are things going to come from? When is this thing really going to kick off in both boxes as opposed to like, you know, the midfield and outside of it? And we had a situation where, right, the winger is super, super wide alongside the fullbacks, right? The profiles like play into that in that Olga playing on the left is basically just she's a touchline attacker right? And she's a heavily left-footed dominant player. And when you play her out on the left like that, that's kind of her area where she wants to be, where she prefer to be. Then you put Atene on the right, obviously she's going to end up playing a bit wider than on the left. I mean, she still plays quite wide on the left, but then there's a the potential like sort of like Vinicius to come inside and make plays from the half space. And so in the center, you have Muller having to manage all of that as the lone striker with, with Maite in behind her linking throughout midfield as a kind of number 10 attacking midfielder. And what Muller is really good at when playing up top is like the hold up play stuff and then making late runs into the box. That type of striker that we needed in this game, what the game called for was really more of a classic number nine who fixes the defensive line, making more runs in behind. Kind of reminded me of like, us discussing what Aslani is like as a striker in the 4-3-3 we played last season and how she, you know she would do well she would be impactful but we kind of felt like we're not seeing like the best of Aslani this is not the best way to use her it's how i felt like with Muller except to like in terms of like the quality on display it was a, it was a bit less i think it's fair to say i think Muller just had a struggle generally on the day like going back and rewatching the match there were a lot of misplaced layoffs and stuff that normally she'd make stuff. That's normally her strength. So it wasn't just the case of maybe being a little unfamiliar with the role that she had to execute, but just, you know, being sloppy and not necessarily connecting and knitting things together. Like she, she wanted to, I mean, she did have some important moments, which we should talk about, which I think overall made it a decent performance when you consider those, but wasn't the best, I think is fair to say. What did you think of Muller and how she interpreted being the lone number nine for Real Madrid? Yeah, I think what you said is accurate. I think is a suboptimal position for her to be in, not necessarily the nominal position, but how the team lined up around her, because not only did you have two touchline wingers, but it seemed to me as though we kind of had the an inverted midfield triangle as compared to normal. So Maite was kind of as a 10 and then the other two were as like dual eights or dual sixes that sat back a little bit and Maite kept drifting right. So if Muller picked the ball up on the left, she really didn't have all that many options to lay off. Now there were layoffs that she just completely misplayed, but I think that she started to overthink where passes were going because she didn't have these runners that were close to her and she had to make these kind of longer layoff passes back into midfield and it just it felt like a player 
who was trying to play her game, but the game plan didn't align with her game. If we want to play Muller as a lone striker, because I do think it's possible, the key is that you need someone else occupying the defensive line, right? So when you play with the two up top, I mean, Muller can kind of exchange, but fundamentally you do want her like dropping off to receive. If it's not the feet, like taking aerial balls to the chest and stuff, you need to free her up to do that stuff. And that's best if you have a, uh, a proper number nine ahead of her who's going to fix the defensive line a little bit, create some space for her to do it, and probably not alongside uh, a number 10 who's like doing a lot of the similar duties. And I, I generally think my team in this game, she was positioned to the right quite a bit throughout the match, but I think she did a fairly good job of like not trying to get in Miller's way and balancing the positioning well, which is why there were moments where Muller came off and tried to receive defeat. But ultimately, like there's a bit of redundancy there. And more to the point of like the general picture, if Muller's dropping off and there's no one there, you know, either running off the shoulder, you know, pinning defenders, pulling them, if she was to make a play and progress, there's there's no real way to catalyze the advantage of like breaking lines by that, right? Because the wingers are so wide. So there was a bit of a structural problem that I think speaks to why we weren't creating that much early on with the offense, which is that like the, the you know the profiles we put out there with the way our attack was designed was going to make it a little bit difficult to be able to break through a block. And I do think profiles are a big issue because even with a certain idea out there, different players do different things. And I think when, when Cardona came on in that second half, we could, we could see, and, and Athenea went to the other side, we could see how things looked different a little bit in attack and, and how things, in my opinion, became a bit more balanced. I think probably the next place to go to is Olga. I'm really interested in what you think about her performance because I saw conflicting things on the timeline. I mean, she was involved in the goal. She had some decent moments carrying the ball, driving, putting balls into the box. But overall, I thought, you know, you said it, the word, I thought it was a really chaotic performance from her. It wasn't just one or two passes. It was like four or five misplaced passes, you know, not receiving securely, just, just a lot of turnovers mixed in with some positive stuff, which is why I describe it as chaotic. And one thing I, I, I liked from her was that as the half wore on, she started to come inside more as kind of a recognition that with Svava out there, it doesn't make that much sense for us to be in the same line all the time and just creates a more balanced attack if I move into the half space and try to receive there, try to make plays from there. The problem is I just don't think Olga as a player is suited for that. Not as high up, not with her back to goal, where just because she's so left foot dominant, it's really hard for her to receive on the half turn securely, using her body to protect the ball and make plays there. And I think that's part part of where a, a where her turnovers came from was stuff like that. We've seen Olga be a useful player in more central channels from deeper areas where she's facing goal, where she might pass from those areas, where she might carry into those areas. That I'm kind of okay with, even though fundamentally, even as a fullback, she's a touchline player. But but as an attacker, it's a totally different thing because. When you're receiving the ball, a lot of the time in those situations, you're turning with it to face goal. You're not automatically facing goal when you have the ball. That's a different thing. It requires a different skill set. It requires 
either greater two-footedness or to be on a particular side of the pitch. And I thought she just kind of struggled trying to do that, even though I think her recognition was good and it she was trying the right things. On top of that, like, I mean, she just misplaced passes that I'd expect her to make given her quality. So what did you think about her performance, how she played and, you know, her suitability out there next to Svala? Yeah, I thought it was a mixed bag. It was interesting. She did like that cross to Maite was brilliant, but then she had some really bad moments of just driving straight at defenders and like running into them and things like that. And I think at the beginning of the match, we were just dealing with some growing pains. It's the first time that you're playing in a match with Svava. It's her first time being up top in a while. And it seemed to me like Svava wanted to stay on the touchline didn't really tuck in all that much. And Olga's usually that touchline player, like you said, when she's in the final third. Granted, she comes inside from that left-back position, but it's a, it's a totally different thing when you're up the field a bit more. And I think it took a little bit of time to see a little bit of understanding between those two players, but I also think that it just was not her best day. And although she did have some good moments, overall, it, it was just not the performance you expect from Olga. So let's talk about Sophie Svaba. This is the first time we, we've gotten to see her play as a Real Madrid player. I was fairly impressed. I mean, I think I saw some stuff on the timeline that might have been a little over the top. But I was just, I mean, she looked really calm and confident for a debut for Real Madrid. We saw Muller struggle over multiple substitute appearances and not give us much and people criticize her. This is a bit different, right? I mean, this is a start. Her role is clear. I I suppose all those things help, but it's just not normal for me to see a player come in, play for Real Madrid and like, just not look bothered. And I mean that in a good way, like unbothered in the sense that like the pressure doesn't seem to, like she doesn't seem to feel it in that game. I thought she was making some really smart decisions with her passes, like being patient when she needed to, letting the play develop, being thoughtful about who she was playing the ball to. There's one moment where she's driving up the field on kind of like a semi-transition and she's looking at her option. She could fire it down the line to Olga and she just holds it and waits a bit for Maite to kind of arrive and then plays a diagonal ball to the center and finds her and it leads to something dangerous. and. That level of calm, like that was, that was impressive to me to see. I also like the attention she was paying defensively. I mean, we know she's an offensive talent. That when you have as a left back, you have someone who can bomb down the wing and influence that side of the game. And with the squad we have, with the profile of fullbacks we've been targeting or, or we have on the team, I guess, because we haven't been targeting many fullbacks, like that fits what we want. But so to see her then like, pay particular attention to her defense with Tony Payne on her side was another thing that was like, well, that's notable to me. That stands out given the type of fullback you, you, with the reputation you've come in as. And there were a number of moments where she just got the better of Tony Payne, like being really alert to step up, intercept balls into her winning duels, being really alert to, to, to haul ass back and try to cover space in behind. Now, there were a couple moments where Payne ended up getting the better of her. I think the most notable one was the one versus one with Misa, which is 
way i mean that's in the midst of like all sorts of madness that starts happening i went back and rewatched that and there was general disorganization with that line there i think ivana for once in this match i think it was a solid match from her otherwise like gambled badly got the ball played in behind and svava svava's mistake is not being late to cover because she actually get there but she mistimes her tackle and then pain like fully like gets in front of her seals her off and takes the shot at misa so there was that there's maybe like one other moment where i felt she could have done a little better but you never win all of them versus tony Payne. at least i've never seen a non-barca opponent like just completely shut her out not when there's all that space in behind so i thought she was quite impressive defensively i enjoyed that side of her performance offensively i thought it was slightly underwhelming she tried some take-ons that just didn't really come off like if there was one thing she looked less sure about, at least just through execution, it was those, like they weren't super convincing. And then it's not like a whole lot of like crosses and stuff were coming from her side, right? Like she was involved, she was getting touches, but it's not like she was, you know, a huge generator of, you know, combinations, key passes, stuff like that. She was, she was just there and, you know, helping things along on that side. And I suspect we'll see much more of that aspect of her game as like the matches wear on. It's just interesting that for me, this one, like the story for her is her defense. I completely agree. The defense stood out to me much more than the offense. And I think maybe the offensive side of her game suffered a little bit from, you know, Olga's performance as well, just because there was some misunderstanding of who's underlapping, who's overlapping those kind of things. She did have a really nice cross in the third minute that nobody could get to. Um, I think also just from a holistic view, I think this was a good match for her to debut in. She was able to showcase her defensive prowess against Tony Payne while also not really facing a lot of pressure. Sevilla kind of sat off a little bit and she had time on the ball. She did well with that time. I think that Maybe the nerves get you a little more if you have, you know, a team that's pressing you high up the pitch and you're trying to play out and you're, you don't necessarily know all the tendencies of the players. I think that this was a good match to come into for her. And then, like you said, her performance against Payne was really good. thought she did a good job of whenever Payne was coming down the left of keeping her wide, preventing crosses. I think she won most of the duels, uh, one versus one. Like you said, she had that one opportunity, but it was a, in a moment where she was coming over to cover. And I think a lot of that was one of the only chances, only real chances, not from a set piece that Sevilla had on the day. Misa came up big time, but um, I think that, that she impressed on the defensive side. And I, I look forward to seeing more on the offensive side. It's really too early to say, but I think profile wise, Olga Spava on the same flank just feels a little too redundant for me. And they're probably competing for positions. I mean, the attack probably is Atenea Cardona starting anyway, so that just kind of works it out itself. But this was a kind of a chance to see how it might work otherwise. And I suspect Toriel has has some like misgivings a little bit about the way it played out. I mean, he did end up subbing out Olga like fairly early in the second half. I think rotations needing to get someone like Cardona like into, into the swing of things. I mean, she had another relapse with COVID-19, right, in terms of being, you know, on, off the pitch, away from training, back to training, that sort of stuff. But I do think it was also partly because Olga wasn't playing 
all that well, not up to the standard that we're used to used to her being at, which is which is very high, to be fair, because she's a very good player. So you mentioned Misa coming up big, and I do think she did on that save. It was classic Misa. There were many moments where she came way off her line because Tony Payne was coming in behind and Sevilla just seems to be that type of opponent where Misa can showcase that that skill set of hers as a sweeper keeper. On the early corners, I thought she did well. And then in the 28th minute, I thought Misa fell short there. So credit to yeah, Sevilla on this, sure. cor- on this corner. They have a player just like basically right on Misa, challenging her in the air. It looked fair to me, basically putting like a blocker there to disrupt her ability to punch the ball. It's just a good tactical setup on a corner kick. But I think Misa deals with it like really weakly. I mean, I, I think, I don't know if I'd say this is a weakness to her game, but it's an aspect of her game that doesn't really stand out to me. When, when I think about her ability to go claim and, and punch crosses, I think it's, you know, average or above average. And that's about it, right? It's not infallible and good tactic to like test how good she was in that situation. And she just kind of like flops at it, right? She can't really get off the ground really well. She doesn't have the height. To, to be able to deal with it without a proper jump. And it just doesn't really go anywhere. It falls straight to a Sevilla player and it's basically an open net. And it was just kind of like, where the hell did that come from? That one nil and we're down to Sevilla in a game that, yeah, up until this point, we hadn't seen that many chances, but it felt like we were the better team. And so that was wild. I mean, Grant, do you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, it was just really no, straightforward. No, I would right? have echoed the exact same thing. Uh, we were in control, it felt like. It felt like so many games that we've seen before where we have the ball, we don't create chances, and then we allow the other team to s- sneak in front with one chance. And I do think that, that Misa was mostly at fault on this. If you come out, you've got to get a solid punch to it. If you come out, you got to grab it, something. Uh, it was definitely a misread on her part. It is notable that in resulting corner kicks, she did not come out against that like same blocker technique and let her defense deal with it. Now, here's the difference between Real Madrid under Alberto Toril and Real Madrid under David Aznar. What would have happened if this was under Aznar this season, right? We've been playing decently, and then the opposition gets a goal. We Probably from a set piece, and that would be the end of the game, right? Like, it would be basically it. We maybe have a little bit of a burst after halftime and then like that's it like a burst with like five minutes left (laughs) and then we lose yeah we lose and what happens here literally like 30 seconds later right off of the kickoff it's like the fifa kickoff glitch man when you can just run down the field (laughs) we we ended up scoring now i have no idea i have zero clue what sevilla are doing here because <laughs> the, the entire right side of the field just opens up. It's not like they were in transition. It's not like there's some missing context here. They were set. All we did was rotate the ball to the right and then just play short passes to the left. It was bizarre to see how their defensive structure just fell apart. Like their defense was bad. Today. Just generally it was bad, but I don't know if there are excuses for this. I mean, I, I think they just did not expect us to like, they thought we'd recycle it all the way to the keeper, you know, build up slowly. But no, we were like, we had a fire under our asses, right? Like 
we're tired of this. Let's let's put it leveling as quickly as possible, and then let's go on and win this game, right? Like there's we have that fire, we have that attitude again, we have that you know that Madrid fighting spirit again because everyone's not super depressed and like you know oh man we 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 can't handle this season anymore, right? It's it, everything's been renewed, right? We're in a new chapter, and you can see it quite tangibly in moments like this. We carve through their defensive structure and Sarnoza plays a really, really good through pass. ball yeah. into Olga who makes her best contribution in the game with a strong overlapping run fires in across to guess who might theodos who arrives from nowhere and just side foots a really nice volley into the back of the net and bang like that is one one couple things here good run from Muller to the near post to attract all the defensive attention fantastic from Maite. If you like keep your eye on her throughout the entire play, I mean, she's way behind. Like it's a really, really late run to the point where the camera just takes her out of the play for like the, the final actions. And until the cross floats into the box, like that, that was a really committed run. She took a chance there. She would have wasted a good amount of energy had that cross not come to her. But if she's going to play as a number 10, she needs to provide stuff like that. And so it was really good. Ended up being a goal. And yeah, I mean, you can obviously talk more about the goal, but maybe this is also a nice segue into Zornoza's performance because she had, I mean, she ends up scoring, of course, which, so maybe we'll, we'll save it when she, when she ends up scoring that goal. What, what did you think about what, what, what happened on this goal? And I mean, I don't know, like Sevilla's defense. Yeah, the, de- the defense was really, 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 really bad. But it was a great Zornosa pass. It was a great run from Muller, which literally dragged like three defenders to the front post and just opened up a world of space for Maite to run into. I think that finish is underrated on that short hop like that to keep it down. I think you see a lot of players send that over the, over the fence, over the goal. Um, it, was, it was a good move, and it's something that we don't always see with this team. Like you said, that immediate reaction, the punch back. I really like to see that. And from that moment, you could feel an energy that the team wanted to, to kind of put their foot on the gas and retake control of the game, take the lead, and not relinquish it. Sheer nonsense after that in terms of the back and forth, the urge for both sides to score. We started to put more shots on goal after that. And in what felt like the blink of an eye, in reality, it was more like, what, eight minutes later or something like that? Zornoza puts the ball on the back of the net and it's 2-1. Maite assists, but this one was more about Zornoza. And we've talked about her tendencies of just going for it from distance, right? These core there like tendencies, mostly leading to not great outcomes versus Barca. She ends up striking the post, but we discussed whether we wanted her to pass that or not. I think in this particular instance, right outside the edge of the box, no real obvious passing options. It wasn't a bad idea to go for it. The amazing thing is that this was with her right foot. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen her like just use her right foot for anything before this moment. And it wasn't like a soft hit. Like she blasted that. It was, it was a like, laser. It was like she was a right footed player in that one moment and that one moment only. And it was off the crossbar and in like absolutely unstoppable. And then just like that 2-1, I mean, what did you think about Zornoza's performance in this game? I thought she was, she was really good. I mean, she popped up in key moments and really made the difference with that. 
you know, hockey assists to Olga. I really liked how she identified the space in this, but in the lead up to the goal, there's kind of a gap at the top of the 18. She makes a little vertical run. Maite does a really good job to chip the pass to her and find her. And then it's just a little bit of individual brilliance to drag back to get past one who thinks that Zornos is going to hit it with their left foot, just like all of us probably did. Gets by one defender and just unleashes. It was a brilliant strike. She's been immense this season. A huge, huge add with her progressive passing, with her ability to pop up and score big goals. She's a big-time player. She did pick up a yellow card, though, which is her fifth of the season, and she will be out versus Real Sociedad, or that is at least what we are told, which isn't great precisely because of the, the reasons you were mentioning, Grant. Like, she's been a huge value add. I mean, she had a very rough start to the season, but honestly, just being there as the one central midfielder who has been fit throughout this season had value in and of itself. And then when Maite came back, we, we saw the Real Zarnoza come back, someone that looked more like the player we saw today. So she'll be a miss versus Real Sociedad. Although I'm not that concerned with Tere there, who has yeah, been no. underutilized so far under Toril to the chagrin of some. Me. <laughs> I'm some. <laughs> <laughs> not just you. I mean, Tere is, a, is becoming a popular player in the fan base. Like people are realizing that like she's really damn good. Like, especially with, you know, Maite moving forward and, and Terry playing deeper roles where like, oh, people are like, oh, she can do this stuff. Like she can hold this level of responsibility. Just a little more Zornoza stuff. Um, I thought she was good, like really involved in key moments. I will say she does give me the vibes of like someone who's like a little bit of a boom and bust passer. Like she will go for those long balls, those through balls really often like trying to thread the eye of the needle trying to hit those tight window things it like i think that long shooting almost plays into it right like she will go for the big play because she has that ability as a ball striker and it does lead to some sloppiness that i think could be cleaned up it came it was more visible re-watching this game and i think in live time because a lot of these like giveaways it just led to nothing right it's just wiped straight from your mind because the, the net value lost or gained was very little compared to like the big moments in this match, I would have liked a cleaner performance from her. It became starker, especially because I went through that match, particularly because I was picking out like clips from my day because I wanted to make a my day comp, which is live, by the way, guys. It's it's on my Twitter, it's on my YouTube. I'll post something on Managing Madrid so you guys can all see it. But it, it was a little starker because my day was so clean on the ball and there was just a little more sloppiness from Zornoza. It's a bit of nitpicking there, um, but since we're going over performance, I and we I really kind of like slammed Olga. I thought let's let's be fair, let's apply, let's let's apply it to everyone. But ultimately, she was involved in so many high leverage moments that it was just it was just a clear good performance for me. I, I would like her to, especially as one of the senior players on this team, as one of the players conducting the play from deeper with Maite higher up, just be a little bit more judicious with how she does things sometimes. Cause she likes seeing an opening and like, that's it. Like she has to go for it. And sometimes yeah, there's no looking thing. off a pass. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think Maite is like the best player on the team, probably at, at, at judging that sort of stuff. That's the Zornoza stuff. I mean, I, it's just been a fun season after those rough games. Like I really enjoyed watching her play. She, she's always giving you something that was good from her. And I would say like that goal kind of, 
was the end of the peak madness, but this game never really settled down until probably the third goal where it was like, okay, like it's wrapped up. Nothing much is going to, is going to happen from there. Anything else you want to talk about in the first half? Um, there was a Mueller penalty shout three minutes later. All right. Yeah. Um, kind of top of the box. Both of the commentators thought it was a penalty. I thought it was 50, 50. I think that, in live time, it looked like it could have been. You slow it down. It looks like ah, I can understand why you don't give it. Just thought I'd point that out because we've had a couple penalty shouts in the last few games. So, um, and it was a it was another kind of run from Mueller that that I thought was a, one of the positives of her performance. I think it was probably a penalty. I can understand not giving it, even though I think that's a bad decision. What I don't understand is calling the foul on Mueller. That was yeah, just... that was strange. I think that they were saying baffling. that they called a a handball for her falling. I don't know yeah, what was, was going on there. That was that had people frustrated. Like Arancha, like could not. I mean, I think the Real TV commentators do a pretty good job of trying to stay balanced, but you know they had to show their colors there because that was that was a very strange moment for me. Well, it would have been a key point in the game too, because if you put that away, the the chaos is gone. Like it's three one. You can really put your foot on it and just pass the ball, take your time and kind of take the wind out of Sevilla's sails. Yeah, it probably would have been game over, although you wouldn't want to bet on it given how nuts everything had been. (laughs) But at that point, you were just a better team. Like Sevilla's defense was, it wasn't good in this game. And I think when that contextualizes a little bit of the offensive performance, but I I think it was a case of like, us taking advantage of it, which we haven't really been doing this season. So like, I'll take it, you know, that's, that's like a good thing when a team doesn't play well, you have to take advantage of it. And I think we did in a lot of these sequences, but to call that a foul on Muller was weird. The players were frustrated with that and not to really go into it. Cause we've had these discussions before, but the refereeing and in, in women's football isn't, isn't very good. The reason I don't get mad about it is because the support for referees in women's football also isn't very good so it's an it's like an entire institution that needs to be developed and i'll i'll just say like not that you can't complain about refereeing in men's football i just think the differences are so big it makes me even less motivated to complain about stuff in men's football anyway there was that call which you brought up i can't remember whether this first or second half but Mueller had a one versus one where she was like slipped in and she puts it wide of the post, and that was like her best chance of the game. And I think kind of summed up the night for her, like sort of being in the right area, sort of being involved, just not really able to execute. So second half, I do not know if much really changed in those early minutes. I mean, you, you can talk about anything you saw there, but I kind of wanted to jump to the subs because they happened fairly early on, unless you wanted to no, mention anything yeah, I guess the thing is like 57th minute is when Zornoza picks up her yellow card, which, which is a key moment, obviously, because of the suspension. A couple minutes later, Kasi picks up a yellow card. Um, Sevilla makes some subs. And a couple minutes later in the 64th minute, Haril makes his. And I, I, I like how early he makes some of these substitutions. That's, I think we should be doing this with the type of squad we have, with the type of fixture congestion that we have, especially given like the insane schedule that's coming up for us. This is necessary. Still do think it was notable that it was this early and this, the players that came off in one of the cases was Olga coming off for Cardona because it, I mean, 
it really could have just as easily as been Athenea. Instead, it's Olga who comes off. Tede comes on for, for Zornoza. I think that was just a rotation thing. I, I mean, there was, I guess, because of the yellow card, maybe played a factor now that I think about it. But in terms of like quality and, you know, fitness, Zornoza looked fine to my eye. She comes off. And so you have those two substitutions. So in midfield, nothing really changes. Teresa just takes over Zornoza's role of basically conducting play with deep. Kasi obviously being a little more box to box. Maite being the attacking midfielder. What changes things is Cardona coming on because that puts Atene on the left. And I think really quickly you can tell there's a much better dynamic there between her and Svava. Not even because Atene is like some kind of attacking midfielder positioning herself inside, but because she is right-footed. She will drift into those positions. She will carry the ball strongly into those areas. And that on-ball gravity will open up space for Svava on the overlap. And it's just a better dynamic, you know, with, with that there. Like to me, it's it makes a lot of sense as to why that's the case. Cardona coming on to the right. The thing about Cardona is even though she's a right-footed player on the right wing, she will still come inside and she will still do it effectively. I would say besides Aslani, Cardona is the most tactically intelligent attacker we have, as evidenced by her ability to adapt to being a second striker when we played a diamond. And I think all of that has come together to make her... I mean, she showed these tendencies, to be fair, really early on last season when she was playing on the right. Like She's always had this thing where she just knows when's the right time to drift inside, to receive and provide some presence in the half space. She won't be there as just a regular presence, right? Like She's not like messy interpreting the right wing role where she's a false winger. She is a, a winger through and through who as like a secondary quality will come inside and receive there. And she does it very judiciously. She does it when she needs to. And it's why that dynamic between her and Kenti has always looked so good, even though they're like two players who, who like to be on the touchline a lot. And I think it was really visible today just because of like the contrast of what we were seeing before she came on. And I thought this was the best Cardona performance we've seen since her injury. Like we've, we've talked a lot about her every single game she's played since she came back. Heavy, heavy amounts of rustiness. Looks like she lacks confidence. There were still some, you know, touches that, that weren't quite there. This didn't look like the real Cardona, but I thought she was good. I thought the, the purpose with which she was playing you know, the, the, the crispness of her passes. I thought her dribbling came alive more towards the end of the game and we had some good moments. But it was just refreshing to me to see this is what a, a player of her quality provides even when she's still working her way back to her best. When she does that stuff coming inside, like it just provides better angles for progression. It pro- provides better spatial occupation. It just helps us move to goal a lot more efficiently and a lot more creatively when she does those sorts of things. She does have some, some limitations as a receiver inside. Like she's not quite someone who will just spin away on the half turn. The fact that she wants to receive with her right also maybe impedes that a little bit. And her left foot is good, but it's not great. Like it's not ultra, ultra reliable. Like there were some moments where she tried some promising passes with her left foot over the far side that just didn't come off. But Overall, I think a really healthy performance from her and kind of a little bit of a tiny showcase of, of what she was providing us last season in terms of all the different things she can, she can do on the right wing. What did you think about her, Grant? Yeah, there were two moments that really just 
signaled to me that she's getting back the, the pass and the lead up to the goal that probably could have been an assist. And then there was a moment later, I think around the 88th minute, maybe where she is on in the left side of midfield and kind of loses out to Tony Payne and Tony Payne starts running towards goal. We all know how fast Payne is and Cardona just turns, gets herself back into position sprints past pain and makes a challenge and that's the quickest i think i've seen her move since the injury in that moment right there that commitment to the defense to being to getting into that challenge and making that run really showed me a player who's confident in where she's at physically and hopefully you know some of those touches some of those moves some of those shots that come with more and more game time they'll come but the fitness looks there, which is, which is huge. Cardona has always been our most committed defensive player in attack, which has always just been amazing to me. Like, take your most productive offensive player, goals plus assists, your best offensive player, arguably, like, the star of the team, and she does more defensive work than everybody else. Like, that's, it's always been a little wild to me. She just, she just has that fire in her. She just has to compete that way. She only knows one way. So you already mentioned the goal. And I like, in a lot of ways, this sums up many things about Cardona. So she creates that by driving inside, right? Taking the inside route, filters a nice pass through Cardo- Aslani, who, who has come on at that point. We have to talk about her. Misses like three times. And it, it falls to Atene and Atene scores. And Isabella Echeverri almost blocks it on the goal line, but it goes off her head and into the net, and that's 3-1, and we were really on top by that point. If you just fix your eyes on Cardona throughout that entire play, like the sheer frustration on her face when Aslani misses it the second and third <laughs> time, and then she like doesn't even react when Atenea scores, because like she's still focused on that. She's like, come on, guys, like what the hell is going on? And then she like stops for a moment, and she's like, Oh shit, we scored. I better go over and celebrate. Like <laughs> it's she's just too funny, man. Like like in the moment, she just can't handle failure. Like it just bothers her so much. Like we go all the way back to preseason where her and Misa were like separated from everyone else on like the bleachers and just sulking because we was this the game versus Real Sociedad? It was that the milk lost? trophy game. Yeah. With the yeah, yeah, I think it was. We lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we got battered, right? Like, they were so fucking mad while everyone else was like, you know, it's preseason. You just see these moments where Cardona and I just laugh, like, because as soon as that goal goes in from Atene, like, everyone else is, like, just changes, like, instantly. And Cardona, like, just doesn't react. She's just, like, in that moment, she's like, how the fuck did we not score there? She's so funny, man. Um, yeah, so that's, that's Cardona for you. And I, I think that's a good thing for this team. For a side that in a lot of ways lacks experience with a lot of the younger players that is not consistent throughout 90 minutes that can fall behind and is unsure whether they're going to come back or how to manage things. A player like that, who is just in every single possession, she has to come out on top. That, that adds a little something more to the team. I don't want to exaggerate it, right? Like, I don't want to say, oh, that is the reason Cardona is the best. No, the reason she is the best for us is because of what she does as a footballer. But when you add that onto it, on top of the fact that she is a player who leads by example, right? Like she, she, as I said, she will never take a possession off. 
she can tell someone else to go do defensive work because she does it all herself. That has, I think, positive effect on everyone else because there's a certain standard that she sets that other people kind of feel compelled to, to reach. And that's something you notice with a lot of elite players on good teams is they just, they just have a little bit of a different mentality the way they go about things. So that is probably enough Cardona. I mean, I, we love to talk about her, but she was a substitute. I don't know if there were so many things that we need to spend more time on her. Where do we go from here? I mean, we could jump to Aslani. We could talk about Athenea. Yeah, I think we could touch on the, the rest of the changes. Aslani came in in place of Muller kind of as that nine originally, and then, and then Esther comes in and kind of pushes Aslani out wide. And at this point, we're just subbing on tons of quality. You have Lucia come on for Kenti. We had just subbed on so much quality at the end of that game, fresh quality, that I think you just see a team that has played together, a team that is just position for position better. And we, we saw out the game, took it over. Before the third goal, Athenea hit the post. We had Esther kind of almost hit the post as well. It took a deflection off a defender and out wide. And you just see we kind of kicked it up another gear once all of these players came on. And I think that that's important going forward, especially against teams like Real Sociedad. You need Aslani and Esther linking well. You need Cardona linking well with those. You need the midfielders linking well. And I think we saw a bit more of that at the end of the game than we saw for the first 80-some minutes. I thought Aslani was great. I mean, I know she messed up on the goal. And she had to be saved by Atenea. And Cardona (laughs) probably didn't appreciate her in that moment. But she was just so good. Like, can she just be fit? And we just have her every game. That's, that's all I ask. I feel like this is the team for her. She's a player that, that's odd in the sense that I think the more and more quality you put around her, she just keeps getting better and better, which I think is a, is a trait that fans take for granted. They're like, of course, everyone just gets better when you put more and more quality around you. And then you take like the Esther Naikari situation. And then you start thinking about how did Messi and Griezmann work together? And it's not really that simple. She is just a player who has the intelligence, who has the skills to basically be endlessly adaptable, even as a number 10, which tends to be the least scalable type of player, right? You think about that playmaker that everything centers around them. Everything flows through them. They control all of the attack. They get all of the touches. They're making a ton of key passes. They're getting shots. And Asani can be that player, right? It's, it's kind of how she's had to be at times in past games for us. But there are also moments where it's like when Asani has to do everything, that's not when you see the best of her. You want her to be leveraging the quality of everyone else around her. And then kind of playing off those movements to then get into space, find chances on goal. She is a player that you can build an elite team, not around, but as a part of. And that, that's what you want when you, when you want to go on and win football games is you want the quality to add up and stack up together rather than detracting from each other, even though if ultimately it's still better, right? Like you don't necessarily want a trade-off happening there. And I don't think Aslani leads to any trade-offs because whatever space you occupy, she'll just move into the next one in a way that's beneficial for the rest of the team, right? And she has the, all the qualities between the lines, the vision, the passing, the dribbling to make it work. 
She has good off-ball movement into the box, so she drags players. She's intelligent enough to take advantage of other people dragging players. Like She is just one of those number 10s that is really, really portable. And we talked about this with Lorena. The difference is Aslani is like two or three tiers above her in terms of quality and impact. Right, which is the really rare thing because most really, really good players, you look at them and you're like, they need things to be built around them. And you do need something specific with Aslani, which is why she, which is why always with number 10s, it's like they are not the most ideal example of this and why it's particularly rare because they do need to be able to operate freely between the lines. But aside from that and for that kind of caveat, she's remarkably adaptable as a player. And I just feel like with this team on paper being better than the one that we had last season, it's not a surprise to me that when she's played, she's looked even better than last season. Because I, th- I think that's just a natural progression with her, right? The initial season with Khan was her worst season as a Real Madrid player. I mean, she wasn't bad, but I distinctly remember everyone being like, I thought Aslani was going to be the best player, but Jakobsen is the best player instead. And that, that was a team that was maybe more suited for Jakobsen, who was a floor raiser who could carry the ball up the field all by herself and make 25 sprints a game, which isn't necessarily Aslani's game. Then the next season, you got all this quality, and Aslani looks better than Jakobsen. And then we have even more quality now, and suddenly we have like a consistent string of performances in terms of if you were to stack them all up alongside each other. Obviously, it's not been consistent because she's been in and out of the team due to injuries and stuff. I think that's kind of what we're seeing. It remains to be seen with a large sample size across the season. But most of the time I've seen her out there on the pitch, like she just looked really good. And today she had those like three shots in that one sequence. She got filtered through on the left and she, she rounded the keeper, I think, and, and put she, a shot. She, yeah. She linked up really well with Athenea. I thought that's what, yeah. that's what I wanted to add about this performance. And it was Aslani playing Athenea through when Athenea hit the post. And then Athenea played Aslani through when she rounded the keeper and hit the post. And we haven't really seen those two link up or play together all that much just because of injuries and rotations and things like that. But it was really promising for me to see those two kind of succeed on the left flank like they did in those moments. Because we know Aslani can do that with Cardona. We saw that. With, with the goal where she took those three shots. But we still have to remember that a lot of these players don't have a ton of minutes under their belts with the other players around them. And that's what you're talking about, her gelling well with other players and making them better. I thought that's what we saw with Athenea and Aslani. And if that's the case, if those two are going to link up like that, that's going to be super, super fun to watch. This is what I'm talking about, right? With her movement and with her really quick one-touch accurate passing and just her ability to build synergies that quickly, she makes Athenea better and Athenea makes her better. Like That is not something to be taken for granted. It's not something that everyone can do. And a lot of times those who can do it are not necessarily the most impactful players overall because those who tend to go on to become really, really impactful are a little bit more egocentric Right. And they're thinking a little bit more about themselves because they're that good and they're the stars of the team. Afani just has like a selfless skill set. I mean, I don't know who she is as a person. I mean, she comes off as a really nice, likable person. Like, literally, I think everyone in the squad loves her and she seems to get along well. But what I can make like an absolute judgment on is is her football ability because that's what we see all the time. And it is a selfless style of football 
that benefits everybody, which leads to it benefiting herself. And it raises the ceiling of the team. I'm trying, that's what I'm trying to get. She's a ceiling raiser. And that is, in my opinion, one of the most taken for granted skills in football because we're always obsessed with who is the player that can lift the team who's bad. But that's not how you win trophies. You win trophies with a team, which requires lots of really good players. So the question is, who helps all of these good players get better? And that's Asani. And that's why the better and better this team gets, I just become more and more convinced that she becomes more essential and you find a way to keep her. So I don't know. I'm finding a lot of things to say about substitute appearances, but it, she was involved in a lot of things. So we were already kind of going into Afenea. Um, we've, I feel like we've in bits and pieces described a lot of the things she did, Grant, but there were some moments that I maybe feel like need to be highlighted dribbling wise. What do you got for me? I mean, Geez, she she started the the game in rare form, just taking players on, and I think it was highlighted by the fact that the rest of the team, bar maybe Maite, didn't look like they were up for the challenge at the beginning, and she was just blazing high people, nutmegs, everything. I mean, she was great today. I thought she probably had the most consistent, one of the most consistent performances throughout the match and was a consistent contributor in the attack, which couldn't be said for the other two positions, the other two starters in Olga and Muller. So a lot, a lot, a lot of our offense relied on her. And I thought she did a, a pretty good job of, of shouldering that burden. I really liked how she linked up with Svava. I liked how she linked up with, with Aslani. I think she is our left winger. I think for a lot of reasons, one, how it benefits her game. The, I mean, instantly when she went to the left, she was driving inside. Like the most memorable dribbling moment is when she twists the defender inside out about four times and just humiliates them and drops them. And that was enabled by the fact that there's a real threat of her going inside when she has her right foot on the left. Whereas on the right-hand side, yeah, she is somewhat of a two-footed player. Defenders just don't respect her ability to cut onto her left as much, which sometimes they pay for. But Athenea just does tend to go to the byline a lot more when she's on the right-hand side. And the left, like she's a true dual threat as a dribbler. That adds something more. And then I just think it makes sense with all the profiles we have. If we want to play like an Aslani up top, especially alone, I mean, Athenea is not really going to be someone who's going to be filling and fixing the defense, but she's going to turn inside and try to combine with that player. So that gets them involved. That pulls the defense inwards. And that in turn really creates an avenue for an advanced touchline fullback with, for, for someone like Slava. So great game for Athenea. Liked her performance a lot. We've gone a long way without really talking about Maite, who was, in my opinion, the best player of the game. Do you feel the same way? I thought it was her Athenea. I think they both had pretty, pretty good performances. Her as a number 10 is becoming quite the talking point because obviously under Osnar, I don't think she ever played there. Might have been one, two Once times. Once or maybe. twice, maybe, but not consistently. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of the time she's playing as the deepest ball player. And she wasn't bad there. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, she, she, she was our best midfielder. And she has a lot of qualities there. But what we're seeing with her in an advanced role is different types of qualities being unleashed. It's the close control. It's her movement between the lines, which we just didn't see last season because 
even if she moves up from those deeper positions, it's not movement between the lines. It's, it's, it's like late runs into the lines, like, like a late run into the box, right? It's very, very different types of movements. And there's no guarantee that this switch would necessarily work if that wasn't there. But we all knew it would be fine because before Maite was at Madrid, she played as an attacking eight, as a number 10. And so all those qualities were on show. That was why there was a bit of frustration to begin with, with Osnar playing deeper. But it was a case of like Osnar being like, I, I don't trust anyone else. I only trust Maite. And ultimately, I think what this is proving is there wasn't necessarily a reason to have that lack of faith. I mean, we didn't have Zornoza last season, but Tede, I mean, I don't, I don't need to convince Grant, but Tede was actually a player prior to Madrid who played that deeper ball-playing role quite a bit. And when she's played it for Madrid with Maite ahead of her, it's also looked really good. And with Zornoza here, that further unleashes the Maite to play forward. The movement between the lines, I mean, just little things like initially kind of like moving one way towards the, the wing to kind of lull a player in front of her, just asleep in a sense where like they think, okay, I've blocked off the lane to my pay, right? Because that's how you defend players between the lines. It's really about the players in front of you first. And then when they receive, it's about someone else stepping up to stop them, right? So for that initial kind of defender, might they just kind of almost moving into their cover shadow as if to say, don't give the ball to me. And when they stop paying attention, she'll just burst out into the open space. And suddenly there's a lane and she receives, she turns and makes plays like going through the footage. And I looked at all of her actions, the amount of time she was indirectly involved with a good box entry, with a chance, was really, really high. And a lot of it was her breaking lines with her positioning, her quality to then quickly make a decision, keep things moving. Obviously, a lot more subtle stuff, deeper, deeper in play, where she just helped us get out of pressure. Like she'd move over, create a triangle, quick passing, feed Kasi into open space. We can play to the far side and we can progress. And because Sevilla were really poor defensively, Maite was just taking advantage of in every single way, right? Like she was always there between the lines whenever a, a wide space opened up and, and there, was, there was a pass to be played into her. She really took advantage of the fact that Sevilla didn't defend the far side well. It was a case of Maite exploiting all the weaknesses that needed to be exploited. And on, on replay, she looked better than I thought she was originally. Like, I was impressed in the game. And then when I went back and looked at all the smaller moments, I was like, this is really classy stuff. And Maite can really play as this advanced attacking midfielder. Now, the thing is, and this is the nuances of different, I don't want to say positions because... I mean, those are not really real. Like roles are actually something that's a little bit more tangible. So I'll say roles. After all this praise, I do not think I would say that number 10 position. Uh, I said I wouldn't say position. Number 10 role is perfect for my day, mainly because I think what you want in that, especially in like a 4-2-3-1, that type of scenario ahead of two deeper midfielders is you want someone who's going to be like more of a chance creation machine, right? Like consistently looking for four players, looking to force a lot of balls into dangerous areas, rack up like five, six key passes a game on their best days, more of like an Ozil type figure there. And Mike Day is a little bit more of like 
a hybrid. Like she will be in those types of positions. She will filter passes through. I mean, she had some really nice through balls in this game, but she wants to get involved deeper. She wants to float to each wing, connect play on that side. She wants to help dictate the tempo a little bit. She is, in my mind, the perfect attacking eight to play in like, just like, let's say it's a 4-3-3, be the most advanced member of that midfield, right? With the freedom to go forward, influence play between the lines, but also be someone who, who, who's kind of like having a hand in all the midfield duties, right? I don't know if she's quite the, a, a number 10 like Aslani, who's really oriented to just making things happen in the final third, which is what I think we need in that position. Now, Maite did end up scoring. I'm sure she'll be good for goals and assists if she plays there. But with Aslani coming back and all of that, I don't know if we can consistently slot her in there. And I'm not sure it's the absolute best for her anyway. But regardless, I think it's pretty amazing that you can play as a defensive midfielder. You can play her in a double pivot. You can play her as just a regular interior. You can play her as a like, really advanced pre-attacking interior. You can play her as a number 10. And in literally every single one of those roles, she's a clear net positive. I mean, how many midfielders in the world can you say do that? I, I'm not really sure, like, to be honest. I'm kind of blanking. I mean, do I have to go Barca? Do I have to say Alexia? Like, if, if Alexia is the comparison, or Patri Giharo and Aitana Bonmati are the comparison, I think Maite is in pretty good company in terms of high-level versatility. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Maite, especially this season, has stepped up big time. She comes up in big games, and she can do it anywhere. I mean, if you're making a lineup, you know Misa's in goal, and you know Maite's in the midfield. Other than that, you know, obviously Ivana and Bob's, but there's a lot more discussion depending on who's fit around the forwards around the other midfield spots, about who's playing at right back, left back. You know that Maite's in that midfield every single game. You know that you might not know the role like you were talking about, but she'll be in there and she'll be a key, key contributor. I'm really excited to watch her play every game now. Like I always appreciated like the deep line playmaker um, because just from an analysis perspective, right? Like they're the first type of player you turn to when you're getting into that side of the game and and you start saying cliche shit like, you know, you, you watch Busquets, you see the entire game and nonsense like that. But as like a fan, I like to see, just in terms of pure enjoyment, I like to see the players higher up. That's why I like Cardona as my favorite player. That's why Atenea, I just absolutely love her. And seeing Maite being involved in like tighter situations where she you get to see more of her magic more of her like really cute little touches to get by defenders like it's she's just a very exciting player and i just you just get a different vibe when she's in that type of position and so i i really look forward to to watching beyond every time she's in the lineup she's just she's one of those type of players with that special quality to her and i will say i always understood why people liked her but I'm not sure like I got got like the level of obsession, right? Like, I, I mean, I got it with Cardona. I got it with Aslani. With Maite, it was always like, I think she's really good. I like her a lot. But the way people rave about her is like, I don't feel like I've been touched like that yet. But her playing in this type of role, like I get that feeling. It's enjoyable because I want to be motivated to watch Real play. And let's just say it's not, been, it's not been easy to find that motivation sometimes with how we were playing earlier in the season which 
I don't think it was a coincidence that that was when Maite was, was basically not playing. So basically at the end, there wasn't much that, that happened after the goal. I don't think, I mean, we already discussed, you know, chances we ended up missing and stuff like that. So I think that covers anything that happened after it. Anything else you want to say? It was good to get three points in the year 2022. I mean, we have not uh, played a league game for a very long time. It's important that we won this one. We go into uh, the Real Sociedad game with some confidence, and hopefully we can start climbing back up that table. I know it's going to look discouraging considering the amount of games that we've had postponed, but we'll play them all eventually, and we got we to gotta get three points almost every time out if we're trying to – to get into those Champions League spots again. Yeah, this Real Sociedad game coming up is, is going to be a real tough one, but I think this gives us good confidence going into that. So pretty much the end of our discussion for the match, we need to talk about something entirely different, far more somber. We all talked about all the stuff that's fun about women's football, but we all know as we have not shied away from discussing on this podcast, a lot of the ugly side that needs to be cleaned up and one of the more infuriating things that come to light has been the hiring of Carlos Santiso, who has come back to Rayo Vallecano, and this time as the head coach of the team. And just a trigger warning content warning here, as I will be reading out mentions of rape, basically audio recording that he sent that is the center of this controversy. This was like a while back. I remember when like this came out on Twitter, like the amount of rage that it caused and kind of the confusion I felt initially because it was, we didn't really know who it was at first and people weren't really willing to say for legal reasons. So it took a while to figure out. He admitted that it's him now. Like initially there was a little bit of a legal thing. Like I'm not going to admit it's me. I'll threaten to go to the police and stuff like that. But he's admit like if there was any question, I mean, there wasn't much because people heard the audio. They knew what his voice sounded like. But if there was any doubt about it now, there's no doubt whatsoever. So 100% he said what I'm about to read out. So in his message, he says, this staff is incredible, but we lack things we need. I keep saying it to be like one of those of Arandina. We need to catch one, but make sure she's of legal age so we don't go to jail. And we need to kill her all together. This is what unites a staff and a team. Look at those from La Arandina who went straight to promotion. So for context, when he says those of Arandina, they were a fourth division side. And three of their players were accused of raping a minor in 2017. And it was a very high profile case in Spain. And so it's really obvious what he's talking about when he, when he says Arandina. Like there's zero question whatsoever. So essentially saying in order to make the staff perform at a higher level, they need to rape and then kill a woman because that's in his mind, that's what happened with the Arandina team. I don't think I need to explain why that is beyond disgusting and how that should instantly disqualify this man from ever holding a position in football again. And yet, after initially losing his position, is back, is head coach of the Rayo Vallecano team. It has been met with absolute outrage. I saw this yesterday and it was just, it completely deflated me. Like sometimes I feel like completely giving up on the sport when I see stuff like this. And it has been 
a tough time in women's football, uncovering all the things that we've uncovered and still seeing all the progress that we need to make. This is going as backwards as you can go. And this is with the Raya Vaikano team, who we've talked about numerous times on this podcast, because there's a concerted campaign by the president who stands against everything the club and fans stand for to destroy this woman's team. They're treated like shit. When the club promised to pay their rent, they don't pay their rent. So they have players out on the street, right? They don't have physios. So physios from the other team need to treat the players when they get injured on the pitch. The men's players have voiced their support for the team. There have been fan protests at the men's game. There have been player protests, campaigns, speeches about this. And you have this little cherry on the cake. You have a guy that said, we need to rape a woman, make our team better. There have been comments by the fan group. As I said, they, I mean, they've been really vocal about this. So they, on the day of the signing of the coach, they said, back in the day, we opposed the signing of a Nazi. Today, we do it before that of a degenerate chauvinist. Basically, this person does not represent the values of the club in any way. Get this guy out of here was what Arayo Pena posted, right? As their official statement against this coach, fans have been up in arms against it. There was a hashtag trending yesterday that was said, get rapists out of football, get Carlos Santizo out of, out of the team. I want to say this without judgment because the Rayo players have been through so much, but the news we have up until now is that the players have not filed a complaint to the union and do not wish to essentially because they're exhausted. And, and they said, we just want to focus on, on surviving and not getting relegated and focus on, on the match that's coming up. I guess one organization that could do something forcefully about it, La Asociación de Futbolistas Españoles, the Association of Spanish Footballers, came out with a weak-ass statement on the thing, four paragraphs, like not even 100 words, I think, saying we reject the comments of the new coach of Rayo Vallecano, we understand that these comments cannot be tolerated. We condemn the speech. It's up to Rio players to do something. I mean, come on. Man. Like, <laughs> it's so depressing how the only people who are trying to do something, who are putting all their emotional energy, are getting mentally traumatized by all of this, are the people with the least amount of power. Like, the fans, like, I put so much into trying to make this news trying to put these issues into a higher profile the players have done so much and the people who can actually do something in power we just flip a switch and change a lot of this just start sitting on their ass any comments on this front it's horrible i mean we see it over and over again in women's football we see it over and over again at rio there needs to be more accountability for those in power there needs to be you know a better way that the players can do this i mean the thing is is the rio players want to focus on not getting relegated they should be able to without having to deal with this stuff it's it's completely bs that they have to go through this over and over and over again every single year and you know we just it just goes back to what we always talk about is we need systemic change not only in football but in society and um Sometimes when fighting for that kind of stuff, it can get really, really dark and depressing, but hopefully we can look towards the future and eventually get this stuff out of here because it should be out of here. It should have been out of here a long time ago. It should never have really happened. But 
it still is happening and we got to make it, we got to make it happen. We got to get it out of here. The Ryder players specifically said, one of the captains said, the team wants to save aside from relegation right now. And in addition, they said the team is psychologically very bad. Nobody knows what we are going through. Just confirms everything we've been saying. In my view, there's really only one way to address this. I think there needs to be a strike by all the players in matches with Rayo and like just refuse to play and just do it until it can't be ignored. Like that, it has to be something so drastic with, I think, league wide solidarity because nothing else has worked up until this point. That's my opinion. It's something that Isa. Begate and Feminino, all of you know her. She posted that I agree with completely. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. And it asks a lot of players. It's a huge risk for them to go out and do that. Their clubs might not be on board. Riley putting their season, their careers on the line. Like it just, the fact that we are talking about this being a potential solution shows how bad it is and shows really how unfair the burden of responsibility is. Like, why the fuck is it on the players? and players not even on the team to come together and do something. But I'm afraid that's, that's the only thing that could actually end up changing things. And in my opinion, this really does need to be changed. But that takes energy. It takes a lot of motivation. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of willing to, willingness to risk your career. You're putting your next out there. And I can't blame any player that's just like, I can't do this. And that's kind of what it looks like at the moment. So. Did not necessarily want it in the podcast like this, but I can't just ignore stuff because it's sad. This is happening in our league. This is a league we play in. And this is just really a common thread throughout women's football. And this shit just has to change. We'll try to keep you abreast with any new developments that, that occur with this. There's always some, something going on with, with Rayo Feminino. If you scroll down my timeline on Twitter, I've, I've reposted an article I had on the recap on the entire situation with Bio. If you guys are missing out on that, read up on it. If you have a social media presence at all, try to, to tweet and make noise about it because as futile as that feels, really the only people who care are the fans and players and no one else is going to do anything about it. So yeah, let's, let's just try to take care of each other and, and see what comes to this. All right, Grant. That's it for this one. We will be taking on Real Sociedad next week on Wednesday. That's a huge match. We will obviously be there to cover it. All right, guys. Until next time, see you later and a la Madrid. A la Madrid.